This podcast is made possible by listeners like you. Please be sure to subscribe and share with friends and family. To help support this ministry, please visit allentempleamec.com slash donate. Thank you for listening. The scripture that was read earlier came from Paul's letter to the Ephesian church, the second chapter, the 8th through the 10th verse. But before I read that scripture again, I actually want to take us to another scripture. And this time, I want us to look at Exodus, the 37th chapter, and the 1st through the 9th verses. Exodus, the 37th chapter, and the 1st through the 9th verse reads as follows. Now, Bezalel made the ark of acacia wood. Its length was two and a half cubits, and its width one and a half cubits, and its height one and a half cubits. And he overlaid it with pure gold inside and out, and made a gold molding for it all around. He cast four rings of gold for it on its four feet, even two rings on one side of it and two rings on the other side of it. He made poles of acacia wood and overlaid them with gold. He put the poles into the rings on the sides of the ark to carry it. He made a mercy seat of pure gold, two and a half cubits long and one and a half cubits wide. He made two cherubim, meaning angels, of gold. He made them of hammered work at the two ends of the mercy seat. One cherub, or angel, at the one end and one cherub at the other end. He made the cherubim, meaning angels, of one piece with the mercy seat at the two ends. The cherubim had their wings spread upward, covering the mercy seat with their wings, with their faces toward each other. The faces of the cherubim were toward the mercy seat. Now let's turn to our scripture for today, Ephesians, the second chapter, and the eighth through the tenth verses, which reads, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. The thing that is common in both of these scriptures that I've read is that they speak to this idea of workmanship. And when I think of workmanship, it brings to mind my own personal fascination with art. Whether it be a sculpture or a painting or some other kind of artwork, I enjoy them. I used to draw a lot when I was a young kid, and I enjoyed it. Now, interestingly enough, for me, the more detailed and intricate the work of art is, is the more I'm fascinated by it. As an example, the painting known as The Prodigal Son, which many of you may know was done by Rembrandt, has such intricate details that it makes my mind go well beyond seeing the imagery, but also to experiencing the emotions of the characters. Also, I like the poem of Frost, Maya Angelou, as you can imagine, and more recently, even Amanda Gorman, um, because they use words that can evoke emotions as they paint pictures on the canvas of my mind. 
I also like the lyrical artistry of Smokey Robinson <laughs> and, and Bob Marley, I understand. And, and, and the musical genius of Quincy Jones and both my daughter and my father-in-law, they can tell you their thoughts on jazz aficionado John Coltrane. So, so I enjoy the intricacy and the workmanship found in the detail and the emotions of these artists as they're able to evoke emotions with their realism. It is also for this reason why abstract art is a little more difficult for me because it seems like the artist just grabbed a paintbrush and just started splashing anything that came to his or her mind. Or just played willy-nilly with clay to produce something that has no definite shape or even purpose. Of course, that doesn't mean it's not art, it's just not my kind of art. Are you with me? So I enjoy great creativity and workmanship, but I'm especially drawn to what goes on into the mind of the artist and what inspires them to create these great works. And so today, as I muse on my appreciation of art, I want to see if we can explore the mind of a creator that made a Rembrandt or a Maya Angelou, a, a, a Smokey Robinson. What was God thinking and what inspired his creativity? And even more importantly, what did he intend to communicate? And so to help me with that, I've titled this message today, quite simply, God's Masterpiece. God's Masterpiece. Let us pray. Dear Heavenly Father, in the name of Jesus Christ, thank you, Lord, for bringing us up to the mountain. Uh, Lord, we are waiting for a word. And for many of us, Moses has been up on that mountain too long. And we have given away to idols. So, Lord, let the thunder roll and the lightning flash and send your manservant down from the mountain with a word for your people today, not made or carved on tablets of stone, but written by the very finger of God on our hearts. This we pray today in Jesus' name. Amen. So as I said before, I, I really like art, and especially good art, and literally masterpieces. But the question that I want to wrestle with in this context is, what really makes a piece of work a masterpiece? Have we ever thought about that? What makes a work of art a masterpiece? Now, the experts would tell you that a piece of work becomes a masterpiece when, number one, the work is, is so original that it overwhelms us by its power. Secondly, it, the work stands the test of time. And third, the work changes the way generations of artists think. Some also have also said that masterpieces, especially those that have lasted over centuries, have an assumed commonality in that they transcend age and geography and cultural boundaries and, 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 and they're sure to be recognized by all and they have these hooks which sort of capture your imagination. Finally, others say, uh, a masterpiece is a way of validating someone's work and also saying that its value is not a matter of opinion, but that it, it has such a level of universality that it is capable of bringing people together in common acceptance of something that is timeless and of undeniable importance to us as well as future generations. A lot of words. I agree with all of these because they tell me that whatever form this work of art may take, 
for it to be considered a masterpiece means that its value goes way beyond anything that we can think or even imagine. But no matter how you may choose to define a masterpiece, one thing is for sure, and it's that once you accept it as such, it is forever linked to you. By way of background, in the first text that I read from Exodus, it gives a very detailed account of the workmanship of a man by the name of Bezalel. Bezalel was the chief artisan of the tabernacle of Moses. If you know anything about the tabernacle of Moses, after the Israelites came out of Egyptian bondage and they were running around that wilderness and they were just like going nuts, God built a tabernacle and he had this man, Bezalel, become the chief artisan. And so Bezalel, he was the one that was responsible for building the tabernacle of Moses. But now God has commissioned this man, Bezalel, to construct what we know to be the Ark of the Covenant. The name Bezalel actually means in the shadow and protection of God. That's what his name actually means, and we'll get to that in a moment. Now, let's be very clear here. While Bezalel was meticulous in showing great attention to detail, and while he was very skillful and careful and precise, he was not the creator of the Ark of the Covenant. <laughs> right? Bezalel was only the constructor. Right? So, so Bezalel did not create the ark. He only constructed the ark. So let's revisit the text one more time. And, and I'll ask the team back there to not bring the scripture up, but I want them to bring the image of the title slide up so you can see the ark. And now I want you to focus your gaze on it. For those online, you'll be able to see it as well. But I want you to look at the ark as I read Exodus one more time. Now Bezalel made the ark of acacia wood. Its length was two and a half cubits, and its width one and a half cubits, and its height one and a half cubits. And he overlaid it with pure gold inside and out, and made a gold molding for it all around. He cast four rings of gold for it on its four feet, even two rings on one side of it and two rings on the other side of it. He made poles of acacia wood and overlaid them with gold. He put the poles into the rings on the sides of the ark to carry it. He made a mercy seat of pure gold, two and a half cubits long and one and a half cubits wide. He made two cherubim angels of gold. He made them of hammered work at the two ends of the mercy seat, one cherub at the one end and one cherub at the other end. He made the cherubim of one piece with the mercy seat at the two ends. The cherubim had their wings spread upward, covering the mercy seat with their wings, with their faces toward each other. The faces of the cherubim were toward the mercy seat. Thank you. I'm not sure what you heard when I read it, but here's what I want you to see. The instructions for its dimensions were very specific. The instructions for its design was very specific. And even the instructions for its transportation was very specific. In other words, the Ark of the Covenant was carefully and meticulously designed and created in such a way that it would reflect the mind and the heart of the Creator. But truthfully, what does all this detail in the design really even mean? Well, I'm sure as most of you probably were listening to it as I had you to look at it, you were probably drawn to the fact that there was just a lot of gold. <laughs> right or 
wrong. I mean, let's be honest. All the reading and all the fancy pronunciations and all of that. Y'all was just looking at a gold box. It's just gold. And not only is it a gold box, it must have been a pretty expensive gold box. Right? But if you're focused on the value of its workmanship, you might miss the meaning of its workmanship. The ark was not designed to be attractive and expensive. It was designed to communicate that the creator has a meaning and a purpose for everything that is important to him. The thing that is most important to God is his covenant and his word. And because that word is so important to God, he wanted to give us something that we could see, touch, and feel that would give us a sense of what matters to him. And when something matters to God, he spares no expense and no detail to communicate that importance. Are you still tracking with me? This is why he had to get the most skilled artisan and the most sacred wood and the most precious metal and provide the most intricate design because he was communicating to us his heart. And whenever an artist is able to communicate their, their art, the workmanship becomes a masterpiece. So the thing that makes a masterpiece a masterpiece is when the work of the artist captures the very essence of what drives the passion of the artist. Whether, whenever, whenever you find that something makes you move beyond your own sense of self and, and you find that you are so lost in your own creativity and you find a way to express it perfectly, brothers and sisters, you have created your own masterpiece. Even if things that you create is not a big deal to others or is even appreciated appropriately by others who do not really understand the value of the work of art to you. This is why I struggle, as I said, with abstract art, because I can't connect to the meaning. Mm -hmm. But that artist knows the meaning, and the meaning in the mind of the creator is what makes something a masterpiece. So if you can value and accept your own masterpiece, whatever that masterpiece may be, maybe, just maybe, others one day may come to appreciate it as well. Now that we have established this whole idea of this masterpiece, now we can look at our focus text in Ephesians. It says, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that anyone may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we could walk in them. I like verse 10. Verse 10 says, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we could walk in them. What this suggests here is that if God commissioned Bezalel to construct in meticulous detail something that is meaningful and valuable to God, such that it becomes a masterpiece of his workmanship, then for the Apostle Paul to say that we are his workmanship means that there is a quality within us that reflects something of the mind of God. It's going to get warm in here, right? This is... Because God has a standard. And by his being the same yesterday, today, and forever means that whatever God makes is good. And when God creates something, it is detailed, it is precise, it is accurate, it is useful, and it is perfect. And because it is all of these things, here's the best part, it cannot be duplicated. So Paul tells us, that we're God's workmanship. 
And we know that we are God's workmanship because the Bible tells us in scriptures that we are created in the image of God and that we are fearfully and wonderfully made and that we are the apple of God's eyes. We hear all of that, but we also know, in fact, that because God knew us, he knew us from in our mother, we were in our mother's womb. He knows the plans that he has for us, plans to prosper us and not to harm us, plans to give us hope and a future. And God knows that we are his beloved treasure and that we were made for him. So meaningful we are to God that the psalmist had to ask the question in the eighth psalm and the fourth to the fifth verse. What is man that thou art mindful of him? And the son of man that thou would visit him. For thou hast made him just a little lower than the angels, but hast crowned him with glory and honor. Well, the answer to that question is simply because we are his workmanship. You are God's workmanship. You are meaningful to God. I know that sometimes we struggle with believing and appreciating that fact because like abstract art for me, sometimes it's hard to find the meaning even in our own lives. Sometimes it's difficult for us to make sense of all the things that are going on around us that cause us to struggle. But the truth is God made you. And because he has made you, you reflect his goodness and your life is meaningful even if you can't appreciate it. Makes no difference. But there is something I want you to notice. I talked about the intricate details of the Ark of the Covenant and that everything God does has meaning and purpose. So here's the truth about the symbolism of the Ark of the Covenant. There's a reason why the entire Ark was made with acacia wood. The acacia wood can be quite dense and hard, and its grain is irregular, uneven, and knotty, with a coarse texture. This type of wood certainly may not appeal to anyone who wants wood that is, you know, more refined with an even appearance. Now, interestingly, another name for acacia tree from which the wood comes is thorn tree which gives the impression that this wood can be very problematic, but be that as it may, that's the wood that God chose to use. But then the ark, fully made of acacia wood now, is being overlaid with gold. Hmm. Molten gold has a way of finding all the nooks and the crannies of the wood when completely covered, and when it's completely covered, it presents something of beauty and perfection. In other words, a masterpiece. The acacia wood is a picture of humanity with all its thorny, knotty, uneven, irregular, and coarse texture. But it is overlaid with gold representing the royal covering of the Lord Jesus Christ over us. This is why the in the text, the Apostle Paul says again in verse 10, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus. Did you hear the part where it says created in Christ Jesus? The text is literally telling us that you and I are the acacia wood. Yeah. But when covered in the Lord Jesus Christ, we then become God's workmanship. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, but we are only his workmanship when we are covered in the shadow and in the gold of his son. Now you see why Bezalel was commissioned to build the ark. For he's, his name literally meant in the shadow and protection of God. Your status as God's workmanship is true, not because of how healthy you are 
or because of how wealthy you are, or because of how accomplished you are, or because of how moral you are, but because you are made in God's image. But when you become overlaid with the pure gold of Jesus Christ, you become a masterpiece. You become a masterpiece because of what God has done in your life by grace. You have been newly and wonderfully created through Jesus Christ so that you might live in relationship with God for his glory. But as much as we are a masterpiece of God's workmanship, let me be clear. We are not God's masterpiece. God did an amazing thing when he made the universe. When he made the planets, the stars, and a host of other breathtaking creations. Just amazing. God did an amazing thing when he made the angels, glorious creatures, the wonders of heaven. God even did an amazing thing when he created man in his very image from the dust of the earth, breathed the breath of life in through his nostrils. Man became a living soul capable of art, poetry, music, all these things, science. But God outdid all of that when he made the body of Christ, his church. You see, when God sent his only son, his only begotten son to die on a wooden cross that I believe to be made of acacia wood, and to overlay that old rugged cross with the pure golden drippings of his blood. Yeah. He created something that was so original that it overwhelmed us by its power. He created something that would stand the test of time. And he created something that generations would forever think about forever. God created a masterpiece, something of which we had never seen before. The cross. The cross. The cross is God's masterpiece. And by receiving the Lord Jesus Christ as the son of the living God who died on that cross, you have access to all that the father has for you. And we all receive it, brothers and sisters, by grace. I'm preaching the gospel. This is the message that the Apostle Paul wants us to get when he said, For by grace you have been saved through faith and not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works so that any of us can boast. I can wear all the fancy robes I want. I cannot boast for I could not, cannot, ever, will not be able to save myself. So Paul says, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. The grace of God and the wealth he offers is a gift. But sadly, too many people only look at the cost and the weight of the gold and miss the meaning behind it all. To help me make this point about God's masterpiece, please indulge me as I tell this somewhat lengthy story as I prepare to close. The author is unknown, and some of you may be familiar with the story, but it makes the point about everything that I'm talking about as it relates to a masterpiece. So I invite the ears of your hearts. Years ago, there was a very wealthy man who, with his devoted young son, shared a passion for collecting art. Together they traveled all around the world, adding only the finest art treasures 
to their collection. Priceless works by Picasso, Van Gogh, Monet, and many others adorned the wall of this family's estate. The widowed elder man looked on with satisfaction as his only child became an experienced art collector himself. The son's trained eye and sharp business mind caused his father to beam with such pride as they dealt with art collectors all around the world. Can you see them? As winter approached, war engulfed the nation and the young man left to serve his country. After only a few short weeks, his father received a telegram his beloved son was missing in action. The art collector anxiously awaited more news, fearing he would never see his son again. Within days, those fears were confirmed, for the young man died while rushing a fellow soldier to the medic. Distraught and lonely, the old man faced the upcoming holidays with anguish and sadness. The joy of the season, a season that he and his son had so looked forward to, would visit his house no longer. On Christmas morning, a knock on the door awakened the depressed old man. As he walked to the door, the masterpieces of art on the walls only reminded him that his son was not coming home. As he opened the door, he was greeted by a soldier with a large package in his hand. He introduced himself to the man by saying, I was a friend of your son. I was the one he was rescuing when he died. May I come in for a few moments? I have something to show you. As the two began to talk, the soldier told of how the man's son had told everyone of his, you know, his art collection and not to mention his father and how much he loved him. But I'm an artist also, said the soldier, and I want to give this to you. As the old man unwrapped the package, the paper gave way to reveal a portrait of his son. Though the world would never consider it a work of genius, remember I told you some art is, the meaning is in the work of the artist. It, it wasn't that big of a deal. The world would never see this work of art as anything a big deal. They won't see it as a work of genius. The, painted, the painting featured the young man's face in striking detail. Overcome with emotion, the man thanked the soldier, promising to hang the picture over the fireplace. A few hours later, after the soldier departed, the old man went about his task. True to his word, the painting went well above the fireplace, pushing aside thousands of dollars in paintings. And then the man sat in his chair and spent Christmas gazing at the gift he had been given. During the days and weeks that followed, the man realized that even though his son was no longer with him, the boy's life would live on because of those he had touched. He would soon learn that his son had rescued dozens of wounded soldiers before a bullet stilled his caring heart. As the stories of his son's gallantry continued to reach him, fatherly pride and satisfaction began to ease the grief. And I can tell you right now as a father, believe me, fathers understand when we're proud of our boys. And our, I'm just saying, it's just, it's just a thing. The painting of his son's suit, now listen, mothers are proud of their daughters. Let's, it's Mother's Day, so I gotta give a little grace to mothers. But I was kinda talking, it's my story. <laughs> So the, the, the painting of his son soon became his most prized possession, far eclipsing any interest in the pieces for which the museums around the world clamored. He told his neighbors it was the greatest gift he had ever received. Are you all still with me? Yeah. The following spring, the old man became ill and passed away. The art world was in anticipation 
unmindful of the story of the man's only son, but in his honor, those paintings would be sold at an auction. According to the will of the old man, all of the artworks would be auctioned on Christmas Day, the day he had received the greatest gift. The day soon arrived, and the art collectors from all around the world gathered to bid on some of the world's most spectacular pieces, the masterpieces. Dreams would be fulfilled that day. Greatness would be achieved, as many claim, I now have the greatest collection in the world. The auction began with a painting that was not on any museum's list. It was the painting of the man's son. The auctioneer asked for an opening bid. The room was silent. Who will bid? Starting with $100. Minutes passed. No one spoke. From the back of the room came, who cares about that painting? It's just a picture of his son. Let's forget it. Let's get on to the good stuff. More voices echoed in agreement. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Can you hear them? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Get rid of it. Yeah, yeah. No, we have to sell this one first, replied the auctioneer. Now who will take the son? Finally, a friend of the old man spoke. Will you take $10 for the painting? <laughs> That's all I have. I knew the boy, so eh, I'd like to have it. I have $10. Will anyone <laughs> go higher? Called the auctioneer. After more silence, the auctioneer said, going once, going twice, sold. <laughs> Cheers filled the room with someone exclaiming, now we can get on with it. Let's bid on these treasures. The auctioneer looked at the audience and announced the auction was over. Stunned, disbelief quieted the room. Someone spoke up and asked, what do you mean it's over? We didn't come all this way for some picture of the old guy's son. What about all these paintings? There are millions of dollars of art here. I demand that you explain what's going on here. The auctioneer replied, it's very simple. According to the will of the father, whoever takes the son gets it all. Puts things in perspective, doesn't it? Just as those art collectors discovered on that Christmas day, the message is still, brothers and sisters, the same. The love of a father, a father whose greatest joy came from his son, who went away and gave his life, rescuing others. And because of that father's love, whoever takes the son gets it all. That's the point of this message. And you have today the opportunity to become God's workmanship so that together with us in faith, as the church universal, we can display to all of the world God's masterpiece. That's what this has all been about. We don't have what it takes to fix anything. And we have no idea what true value really is. You think because you may have a nice car or a nice home or a nice friend or a nice whatever you want to call, or even because you just may be able to walk out and still have the activity of your limbs that you have real value. The most important things in life is what God is trying to get us to see. And you are worth far more than you could ever imagine. Because as ruddy and thorny and irregular as you and I, as Acacia would are, God still wants to overlay us with his gold. And so my brothers and my sisters, who wants the sun? For that is God's masterpiece. May the Lord richly 
richly bless you, my beloved.